So we've been uh, talking often about, and Jack mentioned it this morning, to trust in mindfulness, trust in awareness. And how does this, uh, not that I can answer this all in one talk, but how is trusting in mindfulness, how is moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness going to help us unravel this whole confusing mass of confusing concept that we find ourselves in, maybe without knowing it? How is it going to maybe take us? Where do we think we need to go? That's the question. How is moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness going to free our heart and mind from confusion? And often people might think, I often used to think and still do sometimes, maybe not without even realizing it, having the expectation that uh, awakening, insight, this is insight meditation after all, is going to mm, take me to some new world or create some new and better self. Not just personality, like someone said the other night, I always also thought I'll get a better personality. And it doesn't work that way. But or to some new experience or something different. It's definitely usually pretty uh, ecstatic or pretty significant and far out. And actually, insight and awakening works in quite a different way. I don't want to say mundane, but on a much more simple and direct level. And I, I want to just start on that very, talk about that very kind of simple moment-to-moment -moment level of experience where uh, awareness can come in moment-to-moment -moment and actually shift our relationship to life because it shifts our understanding. That's what insight is. And this basic moment-to-moment -moment level of experience where I want to start is perception, which was brought up a little bit this morning in the questions and answers. Because it's really interesting. Insight isn't about something new being created. It's simply a shift of perception and the resultant understanding of our experience. When we perceive inaccurately, all the stories we make up are inaccurate. Well, that's basically our position. And so insight begins on the level of perceiving our moment-to-moment -moment experience accurately. So I want to talk a little bit about starting with perception, which is really fun to explore. So in terms of the way the Buddha described our moment-to-moment -moment experience, perception is a, a mental, just a quick mental experience that he says is arising in every moment whenever there's sense door contact. So that means the senses are, are you know, the eye or seeing, the ear, the nose, tasting, physical sensation of the body, and the sixth sense is the mind, thinking, emotions, mental states. And so basically the way he describes experience is just these six Sense experiences are happening over and over and over. And you might have noticed in your meditation, you're seeing, hearing, thinking, seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking. You think, well, what's the point of this? When's something new going to happen? Seeing, hearing, thinking. See, we don't notice that something new is happening every instant. But it's just within that range of seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling, seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling. So perception is said when there's a sense contact, an eye that works, a visual form, Consciousness, right, those three come together, that's their contact. If we're not conscious, 
we're not going to see, right? We're asleep. So they come together, that's contact. And then the very normal, natural thing that arises in contact is this quality that the Buddha called perception that's that recognition. What Meredith asked about this morning, there's a sound, we hear it, and just if we know automatically, the mind just kind of knows it's a bird call or the bell. It may say the word, it may not, but the perception is just simply that quality of recognition. So that's based in our previous experience, right? And in the habits of mind. So a sound arises, a bell. We know it's a bell. What we perceive, we think about. And this is where it gets both interesting and wild. What we perceive, we think about. And what we think about through those thoughts, if we're not aware that these are just thoughts, we're constructing our world. So for example, when you heard the bell a little while ago, first in some way the perception you knew it was a bell, you knew it whatever time it was, 7.20 or whatever it's time to go to the talk. So implicit in all of that is the construction of the world that you're here, you're being a yogi, you're on a Vipassana retreat, we're at Yucca Valley, it's in the evening, you're coming to a talk, a whole bunch of stuff, right? Just from coming from that perception of bell, it kind of constructs our world. And that's useful. Nothing wrong with that. We're not saying this is a problem, you know? This is what we call um, conventional reality, but conventional reality is extremely useful. So that if that sound went that bell, and every time, every single time, you know, if you didn't have memory, if you don't have perception, you go, what is that? Really not memory, you don't even know it's a bell. But you know, it's a bell, but what does it mean? What do I have to do? You know, if we had to go through that every time, it's unbearable. So it's useful. But it's so, um, we're so used to it, and it happens so fast, that without really cultivating moment-to-moment awareness, kind of noticing, getting interested in how the mind works, we don't really recognize all that's happening, do we? We just kind of come and sit down, plunk down and wait for the talk, which, which is fine. But <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad I'm talking and you're listening and not, you know, we're all talking. It doesn't work. So that helps, places us in a context. But... A couple of things. Sometimes we may perceive what's happening, say, and the thoughts that come, we, we take those thoughts to be the actual, accurate, total reality, which it may or may not be. So you're sitting here, you're feeling the breath, and you're accurately perceiving pressure, tightness, a little can't take a deep breath. It's an accurate perception. And the thoughts that come from it are my, the breath should be, deep and relaxed. It's not, it's tight, it's unpleasant. Maybe you don't notice the unpleasant part. There's something wrong with me. I'm stressed, I'm too type A, I can't do this right. I'm hiding, I'm suppressing some emotion. There's something wrong with me, you know, and and that, no, never had that experience. And not, maybe we might recognize frustration but not actually realize that all of those thoughts and descriptions guess what? They may not be true. It's just a slight possibility that those aren't the accurate descriptions. The Buddha said, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we then complicate. 
<laughs> with associations and memories and likes and dislikes. And that happens in the blink of an eye, right? And we take, we don't re realize that's happening, and we take that all to be an accurate description. So just in this simple breath example, the power of awareness, simply receiving the experience, tightness is like this. That's it. Just awareness that is not making uh, pre-assumptions, might notice it's unpleasant, might notice a thought arises, I can't do this right, but awareness receives that thought. Rather, without, it, without the moment-to-moment -moment awareness to the thinking, to the mood, to the sense experience of the tightness, we might notice the tightness and then the, all the papancha is the word that the Buddha used for these thoughts and assumptions that then, these notions that we add on to every sense experience, he says they then assail and overwhelm a person. So we start from some simple sense door experience, tightness, unpleasant. A few thoughts of it's tight, I'm too stressed, I can't do this right, what to do, how can I fix it, how can I, I shouldn't be here, boom, we're assailed, we're completely overwhelmed in that amount of time. <clears throat> this goes on more than once or twice a day. <laughs> and not just here, not just here. But the power of, of the willingness of, um, of mindfulness, awareness to just simply meet what's happening. Oh, tightness, not liking it. That's what's happening. It doesn't have to go anywhere else. So that's one big complication that can come from perception when we don't see how fast the whole thing's moving. But even more, even more, or in addition, or along with the whole package, perception itself, the recognition itself, sometimes it's not so accurate. Have you ever noticed that? That that moment of perceiving, you know, there's a sound, there's the contact, there's the consciousness, the knowing of sound. But why we keep talking about noticing the attitude in the mind that's being aware? Because in that moment of perception, the perception can really be colored, affected by the qualities that are in the mind at that moment. So for example, and I know at least one or two people have had this experience since they've been here, you start to notice that maybe not everybody here, but a whole lot of people that are coming through your line of vision, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> they just bug you. They're walking funny. They're eating funny. You don't like their clothes. They're too close. They're too far. They're too good yogis. They're too bad yogis. They're too... And it, you know this can go on for a while, and suddenly, oh, maybe there's a version <laughs> in, the, in the consciousness. And when that aversion's there unseen, it just colors our perception. When we don't recognize that, we take the perception to be accurate. Or if you're really falling in love with someone, or as we call it here on retreat, we won't, go, we won't <coughs> dignify it by falling in love. On retreat, you develop like a, a being drawn to somebody who you know nothing about, so they're a great field for projection. And through that desire, they look beautiful. They look fascinating. Even their shoes, even their shirts are so like interesting. 
right? <laughs> the Tibetans have a saying that desire puts feathers on the object, kind of paints it up. Then at the end of the retreat, you talk to that person, you go, what was that all about? You know, it's gone. <laughs> and you just see, you know, a lot more accurately. So there can be, and there often is, this is why we're so much pointing to what's in the mind, this misperception based on um, the qualities that are in the mind stream at that moment. And then that misperception leads to the same thoughts and assumptions, and the whole show is created, but it's not even accurate to begin with. A friend of mine told me this great story. I've used it a lot, but it's so perfect. She was many years ago uh, in Switzerland, Swiss woman. She's on a, on a meditation retreat like this in Switzerland, I think with Ajahn Sumedho. And at that time, um, they would rent facilities like this. And in Switzerland, they had these big old like camp houses that kids go to for summer camp. So they're really big with a lot of room, rooms, but they're, they're just wood, no insulation, very kind of old and creaky. So they were having this retreat in a house like that, the kind that, you know, the walls creak with the wind and the floor creaks when you, when you walk on it. And she said the, the meditation, the room they were using for the meditation hall was on the second floor, and immediately beneath it was the room they were using for the walking, the walking hall. So, of course, in the walking, you know, it made a heck of a racket with everyone walking back and forth. But this being Switzerland, when it was sitting time, you sat. When it was walking time, you walked. <laughs> and people just do that. So she was sitting in the sitting time and in the, there and, you know, being with a breath. And this is that in, out, in, out, being with a breath, getting really concentrated, having a really good sitting. And then she started to hear this creaking, creaking, somebody walking downstairs. And it really, you know, was ruining her concentration. I'm sure you can relate. So she'd be sitting, creak, creak. Instead of just bringing mindful awareness, satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom to the sound of hearing, hearing, which could be no problem, it was annoying her. The sense of this is the sitting time. What's that person doing walking? They know you can hear every single creak up here. In, out, in, out, getting kind of creak, creak, creak. And just, she was really getting worked up and going into a whole spin about how she had to go down and tell the person they needed to start announcing, you know, the whole thing. We've got to regulate this better. And then she said, okay, let's just try receiving my moment-to-moment -moment experience with awareness. And she just dropped her thinking, came back to the breath, and just really felt just completely surrendered into the unknown of this one breath, totally present with that. And as she breathed in and her chest expanded, she realized that she was leaning against the wall. And whenever she breathed in, it made the wall creak. And that was the sound. Well, as you can imagine, the whole story and all the anger just vanished with that accurate perception. Right? That you could call that an insight, but that's really the way it works. When the perception is accurate, just what's happening now, all the confusing, mixed up stories and our reactions and our emotions, our engagements, they fall away because they don't make sense based in reality. That's the shift that happens. We start 
when we recognize in a moment ourselves, experience what's happening more accurately, then the reactivity, the dislike, the wanting, the self-blaming, all that stuff doesn't make sense in that moment. It's not like we have to surmount it, dig it out, root it out, do you know, all kinds of things to be a better person. A lot of our pain and confusion and reactivity is based on not perceiving accurately. And so the power of correct perception is huge. And, and as he says, I talk on, you see, even on the deep levels of impermanence, of no lasting sense of self, it's not as if things are permanent, but you have some big experience and then everything starts to be impermanent. It's not that you're sitting here with it, there is a lasting solid self and somehow if you have the right experience, it's gonna break into pieces and then you won't have a self anymore and that's why people get scared, you know? How am I gonna function without a self? Well, guess what? <laughs> it's already like that. To me, this is hugely reassuring. <laughs> hugely. In fact, the problems are really like, you know, round peg in the square hole because we're not recognizing accurately. And so this process is at the heart of our, our spiritual practice, but certainly of our, uh, our meditation here. Cultivating moment-to-moment -moment receptive awareness. It really isn't about getting the right object of awareness or the right experience. That's just based on what we know and what we think on the assumptions we've made, the views we've created but opening into receiving the unknown experience of each moment because we never know what's going to arise next. We assume I'm going to pay attention to the breath for this sitting. Well, you already know that's a joke if you think you're going to sit down and just be with the breath, right? But we still hold that idea. And when something else happens, we think I did something wrong because I decided only the breath is going to be arising in this sitting. There should be no sounds. There should be no pain. I should have no emotions coming up because I've decided I'm going to just be with the breath. And instead of just settling into and let awareness receive all the different things happening, we glom onto this idea it should be like this and all this other stuff. We don't even let in the perception that there's constant change, things arising in things. No, this is all wrong. This is all a mistake. Because I think this should be happening. Do you ever notice your mind doing that? And the practice here? And what's the effect? Suffering, right? It doesn't bring a sense of harmony with the world. It doesn't seem to bring a sense of confidence in awareness or in oneself. It's a sense of struggle, a sense of square peg in a round hole, or vice versa. <clears throat> So this power of perception and really getting interested in how the mind works and noticing what's coloring the mind in moments of perception, it's fascinating. And it's a huge aspect to freeing us from confusion. Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, who was a wonderful, wonderful Tibetan teacher, he said, when our sense organs encounter an object, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by all your accumulated habits and past experiences, the whole process is entirely subjective. 
When your mind is full of anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. When your mind is peaceful, free from any clinging or fixation, and whatever you do is in accordance with the way things are, you experience everything as primordially pure. Now, have you had experiences of that? I think you probably have, because it's normal. It's natural. When any moment, when the mind, the awareness, is not distorted by greed, by confusion, by hatred or fear, when there's just present moment receiving pure conscious perception, we do experience the world as primordially pure. You might not use those words, but when you're just standing looking in the desert, it's like, oh, it's so, you know, whatever word you use, peaceful, beautiful, lovely, whatever, just that, isness. We tend to give the power out to the object. The desert's so peaceful. The desert's so beautiful. We forget to turn around and notice, oh, the mind is pure right now. The heart is pure, just for a moment. We can often think of the heart pure, and we you know, extend that in our mind in time. Think, well, my heart isn't pure. You know, five minutes ago, I was filled with rage. You know, next week, I know when I get back home, I'm going to, my, my heart isn't pure. You know, almost shrink away from using that word in relationship to yourself. But if we just, if it's moment to moment, what's arising in the heart and mind in this moment? So go out, look at a cactus, just look at the sky. And when you notice that feeling of just ease, wakefulness, cleanness, purity, happy, whatever the heck, Turn around and notice, oh yeah, in this moment, the perception isn't distorted by these states. Get familiar with that, because it happens all the time. Ajahn Chah, who was so um, pragmatic in the way he described it, he, he said he held up a vase, and he said, look at this vase. You think it's nice or beautiful or ugly, but the vase itself is just indifferent. It's we who are making ourselves insane, right? <laughs> Sokni Rinpoche describes it the way that all this papancha, this thought works is we get into so much confusion by letting ourselves get lost in the thoughts about whatever happens. It's fine that the thoughts are there. We can recognize them as thoughts. It's when we get lost in them. He says, so you project a thought, like that thing with the breath. There's tightness, and you project the thought. My Breath is too tight. There's something wrong. Then the second thought believes the first. That's true. There is something wrong. And what is it? Then the third, fourth, and fifth thoughts are projected. The first thought is by this time already a reality. By the time the tenth one comes, it believes that the fifth thought has always been an actuality. <laughs> right? That's how it works. But starting to see that, you also see we can play with that. We can see that it, what it's doing and sort of shift around the, the stories we tell about a perception. It's kind of fun to play with this malleability when you're on retreat and see that as the story changes, the mood changes, the whole thing changes. It's not so solid. So I'll read you this poem that um, speaks of that to me by Billy Collins. And the title is Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. <laughs> he is barking 
the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. <laughs> when the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking. <laughs> his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo. <laughs> That endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> so we don't have to feel so gripped, you know, we can notice when we're really locked in. But the understanding of what's happening, just, oh, this is how the mind works. And sometimes we can play with the story, sometimes we can come back and really notice with this just this simple awareness. What is coloring the perception in this moment? And this is when we say, just check your attitude. This is what we're talking about. It's as if you know, you're wearing red, red colored glasses or blue colored glasses, whatever, and you forget they're on, so everything you see is blue. And you can start reacting to the world as if it's that. You like it, you don't, you get frustrated, whatever. But then when you kind of just bring your attention in a little closer, you go, oh, blue glasses. That's what's going on. Right? And then everything still looks blue, but you're understanding what's happening. And in fact, with turning around and noticing the distortions of, you know, greed, just I've got to have this, or aversion, or fear, or confusion, sometimes just the noticing, well, it stops being so strong. It's not that if you're not trying to get rid of it, you're just noticing it. But sometimes in the noticing, it's as if the glasses start to come off. Very interesting, and we see more clearly. So kind of the next step, the next solidification of these thoughts, as Sogni Rinpoche said, the fifth, the tenth. By the time of the tenth, you totally believe the fifth. This is what the Buddha talked about as views and opinions, that what we perceive, we think about, what we think about, we complicate. <laughs> what views are you having, Howie G? <laughs> we complicate. And without realizing it, there can be a clinging. As one of the Buddha talked about, one of the four fields of grasping that really we get very uh, lost in and that cause us a great deal of suffering is that these, this description of reality might breath is tight, therefore there's something wrong with me, for example. You know, or the barking dog is driving me crazy. The neighbors are sick. I'm going to go nuts if this something doesn't change. You know, whatever. That sound in the hall is completely ruining my practice. It shouldn't be here. That person should be told to shape up, right? Because that's how it should be. And we don't even recognize that the thoughts have solidified into a view, into a description of ourselves, the world, the way things should be, that we absolutely believe, take to be the truth. 
the truth of how things are. And it's, it's insidious because mostly the descriptions, the views we take to be the truth, they're so familiar, we so believe them, it's not like we know. You know, some of them we know. When, when my friend recognized that the sound was her leaning against the wall, that was so clear. That view went away. The view that the guy, there was a guy downstairs walking making noise. Now her view that nobody should be walking during a sitting period might not have gone away, you know, but maybe. So we use the, you know, the, like the way I said earlier, the bell rings, there's that whole perception it defines and conceptualizes and contextualizes our self, our day, our whole world. If we know that's a concept, it's description, it's a common reality, a conventional reality, that's fine, that's useful. If we don't recognize that, so often the descriptions, they harden into views that, that limit us, that define us, define our world, that bring us into conflict with ourselves, when my breath is tight and my view is that means I'm not doing it right. That bring us into conflict with others. I mean, look at the world. How much of the struggle, the prejudice, the suffering, the war is based in different people absolutely knowing this is how it should be. This is how people should behave. This is how people should believe. This is what I own. This is what you should own. How much of cultural misunderstandings are based in you know, the way we're brought up, the, the views and the ways that we imbibed as children of how you relate to people, what this means, what that means, and you come into another culture that is different. And if, if we don't even know we're holding the view, there's so much suffering, so much struggle. It really... It's like the basis, I think, for so much of the pain and confusion in the world. Racism, religion, fundamentalism, um, cultural differences. Look at politics. Let's not go down that road too far, but opinions are fine. Views are fine. We need views. We need to vote. We need to make choices. But, and I won't go into any specifics, but, you know, politics is a, a gripping one, right? Can you even really openly listen to someone holding in a very strong way the totally opposite view of yourself? Can you, can you listen and be open? I have a lot of trouble. I remember back, like, I won't talk about this time, but back, you know, years ago, there was a certain politician that would come on the TV. I couldn't stand to listen to the person. I didn't want to know one good thing. There couldn't be a good thing about anything that person said. And this is what happens when there's attachment to views. It's as if our perception snaps shut. It's so interesting. It's like we don't even know we're holding to this view. And because any alternative view is troubling, it shakes our ground, our certainty. It's almost as if we don't even let it in. This example, this happened on a retreat some years ago. It was a little big retreat like this, and we were going, it was about the fifth or sixth day of the retreat, and a woman came up, and I then, I sat in a chair then, as I do now, she came up and said it was her first big retreat, and she had just been in agony, agony, sitting cross-legged on the floor, and you know, we said the same things we say here, just dying because it was so clear you couldn't meditate if you couldn't sit cross-legged on the floor. 
That was the only way to do it. And she was just dying. All her sittings weren't about any kind of balance of learning from pain. It was just about you know, aversion and dying. And the fifth day, she's sitting there. And she goes, oh, Carol's sitting in a chair. <laughs> Literally, that perception hadn't made it in. It's amazing. It's amazing. And in that way, that's the kind of an insight where the, the steady moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness, that's what mindfulness starts to break down, the continuity of mindfulness. It breaks down our uh, unconscious selective perception. You know, unconsciously we choose the, the perception to pay attention to that, um, that feed, that support the beliefs we're holding. And we don't even realize that because we think those, those views are true. Like for instance, on retreat, often the view is a real self-judgmental, self-negative view. You know, so many of us have that, a sense of worthlessness, sense of I'm not good enough, or I don't deserve, you know, to exist on this planet, or fear of bothering people, all that stuff. And what will we notice? We'll notice perceptions that feed that. And we're completely oblivious to all the times when nothing like that's going on. When you're doing fine, you're not bothering anyone, or you're even getting positive, you know, cues. That doesn't count. Only the perceptions that fit our view are let in. So in retreat, in our life, in the world, this is what's going on. So can we even, even hold the possibility on a very deep level? What, what might be views, assumptions, descriptions of myself in the world that I'm holding that I don't even know. Sometimes when you get shaken up on a retreat, it's because some of those views are getting shaken. It's like, great, when that happens, when you feel confused, when you feel ill at ease, when you feel a little scared, I don't mean lost in terror, a little scared, okay? That's great. Something's getting pushed at, something that seems so solid and I know how it all is. Well, if we knew, if this was really how it all is, what we knew, what we think we know, my God, you know, let's open to something new. So a friend of mine told me this story. Just listen and see, can we open to the possibility? He uh, was with a Tibetan teacher many years ago, Lama Gendon. And Lama Gendon was giving a talk to a whole bunch of Western students. And he was talking about the different realms of existence. He was talking about the pure land, the Devachan, which is some realm of gods and where the Amitabha Buddha lives. And he was going on with this very long, intricate description of this, this happy realm of practice and what it looks like and what the devas are like and what the Amitabha Buddha is teaching. And after a, quite a while, he stopped and looked at all this skeptical Western audience. And he said, if you think I'm making this up, I've been there. <laughs> That's all. What does your mind do with that? <laughs> and at another level, I heard on the, on the public radio, you know, they just had elections in Bhutan, which is a Buddhist country and a kingdom, and the, and the king has decided to try and bring in more of a parliamentary system. So they had elections, and they were interviewing one person who said, um, oh, let me get it right. He said, uh, I was really surprised at how aggressive democracy can be. 
because it's not in our way to criticize one another publicly, and that's what the parliamentary system is all about. <laughs> oh, well, that's really interesting. So our deep habits of clinging to views that we don't even know, descriptions of the world that we totally abide by and then move and act and react from. This is not seeing this, not seeing these, is really one of the big sources, as the Buddha described it, of our confusion, of our suffering, of our causing confusion and suffering in our relationships, in our reactions, in our responses to other people. And what awareness, the steady, simple continuity of moment-to-moment awareness of whatever presents itself starts to do is to allow us to begin to see, to even recognize, oh, this view is here. To see it being constructed in a moment, to see it going away. To begin to not get rid of it, but to see through it. And so on the very uh, maybe most subtle level, of our moment-to-moment experience in the mind and the way the Buddha talked about it, some of the most subtle, insidious, deeply felt to be true um, views that we hold, or perceptions, starting with misperception. He talks about the distortions, the perversions of perception. And so three in particular I want to mention, and you, if you, you'll, you'll recognize where they are, is one is that in what is constantly changing and impermanent, we perceive permanence. We perceive permanence. Remember, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we complicate and turn into a view. And so on an unconscious level, when we perceive permanence, it moves just like that to kind of an unacknowledged view that, yeah, things are not changing. I'm talking this on a deep level. We might say in our mind, I know things are changing, but what are we really acting from? Seeing in what, in what is unreliable and what cannot give us any long-term lasting pleasure, seeing happiness, seeing pleasure, right? I mean, it doesn't, of course there's pleasure in the world, but it's seeing, like, thinking that this donut is really going to do it, right? <laughs> this relationship is going to solve everything, you know, whatever it is. And the third is, again, seeing uh, a a lasting, separate, um, lasting self where there's not one. And these perceptions, and a perception is just in a moment, leads to how we think about things, leads to the view, and that view leads to how we respond how we are in the world. So this is really where the awareness begins to show up in all its simple beauty. It's incredibly simple. It's just what's happening right now. Awareness just receiving what's ever happening on whatever level, open to kind of the mystery, not assuming, not looking to see through the perception of impermanence. Now I'm going to see impermanence, right? Now I'm going to understand not-self. I'm not going to see self. I'm going to see it doesn't work. That's just another view. But when we can trust enough, this is the Dalai Lama said, 
that all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's a big statement. All of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. That's the power of awareness. As Ajahn Sumedho likes to talk about, just awareness receiving. Or the language he uses is, it's like this. So in the moment, not saying, oh, I want to look for no self, or I'm thinking of permanent, just what's happening right now? It's like this. Sadness feels like this. Anger feels like this. I don't know what the heck's got. Confusion feels like this. Subtle sensation of pressure feels like this. Coolness feels like this. Purity feels, you know, just whatever's happening moment to moment to moment. The thought, oh, now that's a moment where the, the perception's really clear and this feels like purity. No, 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 no. Oh, thinking is like this. Wanting is like this. Constructing an incredibly elaborate story and you're down there, oh, being caught up in a story is like this. It's like a little Tai Chi move, I like to say. You know, where it's not that awareness is changing experience or manipulating it or fixing it or trying to move it in the direction of impermanence or not self or purity. When we talk about trusting mindfulness, and I'm using awareness and mindfulness uh, uh, synonymously at this point, meaning that moment of awareness is that knowing of conscious perceiving what's happening, the knowing of it, And it's not colored in that moment by greed or confusion or hatred. So awareness receiving. We trust it. We learn to trust it. We don't have to manipulate or fix or understand or figure it out or come to a conclusion or have an insight. We don't have to do anything, which is so great because basically whatever we do, most of the time it's stemming from misperception, confused thought, and wrong view. So trusting awareness is something Upandita, Saida Upandita, who is a very fierce um, Burmese meditation teacher. He could be very demanding. But I always felt a tremendous trust when I go into interviews. And one interview I can't remember, but you just describe very specifically what's going on. You start to interpret you're out of there. You know, if, you go, if I went into him and said, I had a really good sitting, you know, out. <laughs> what are you talking about? Just describe what's happening. Well, that's an amazing training because you're just trusting awareness. There's pressure. There's tightness. There's aversion. There's thinking. I don't like it. I notice aversion. I'm feeling tight. There's sadness. I'm crying. I'm noticing crying. You're just noticing each thing. That's awareness receiving. No comment. No problem, no hierarchy, no preference. And he said to me, I was having something difficult was going. I don't even remember what. And he said, you know what? You don't, with awareness, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Because awareness, now I'm moving to Samedo's language, but saying awareness is a point that includes. Awareness can receive anything. Awareness, there's nothing that can't be received in awareness, in our experience. But mostly, we're so focused on what's happening and our reactions and the stories and what it means about me. That's the third uh, misperception. 
what it means about me. Notice, just notice over the next day or so, if it should arise, (laughs) such a thought should arise, how quickly does the thought bring anything that's going on back to what does it mean about me? Somebody drops something all the way across the cafeteria. How, oh, good thing it wasn't me. (laughs) Or you do something, oh, I hope nobody saw that. Or you have a really good, you know, you feel like you're having this great sitting and you get up and you're in the flow and you're walking out. Mm, I hope they're seeing me. You know? <laughs> or somebody else is walking by and you can tell they're really with it. Yesterday they were all jangling. Today they dropped in. Wow, how can I get like that? Just notice. The tortoise, I don't know, a lot of you probably saw the tortoise. And it's beautiful, you know, it's so great to see that. Well, I'm seeing the tortoise, you know? <laughs> Just noticing that. It's a hoot. It's incredible. What does it mean about me? But awareness just receives all of that. No judgment, no problem, no trying to pull away. And through that, steadiness, steadiness and non-preferential noting. See, awareness can receive anything. We don't need to be afraid of anything. And through the steadiness and the kindness and the willingness to just surrender into the unknown in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. Actually, that's what allows our, our mistaken perceptions to begin to shift. It happens by itself. We can't make insight happen. That's exactly what unwise effort is. Because first, it's an insight because it's seeing, it's perceiving, it's understanding in a new way. So if we haven't had it and we don't know what the new way is, how the heck can we make it happen? We don't even know what it is that needs to happen. We only know what we already know. That's why Krishnamurti talks so much about the power of freedom from the known. When we think we know how things should be, and that happens all the time in meditation. We, we don't even think that we think we know. We know that we know what concentration should feel like and how deep it should be, which I'll tell you, if you think concentration should be deep, it'll never be deep enough for however <laughs> you think it should be. You know, or we think we know what anatta or no self should be like, or we think we know what a sitting should be like, and so we try to make that happen. This is wanting, pushing, meing, unwise effort. And when does insight arise? When does that sudden, you know, you're working on a naughty problem or something's really bothering you, or like my friend with the sound of the person walking downstairs? When you relax, when you let your attention just reconnect with what's arising now without trying to make anything of it, total surrender with wakefulness into what's arising in this present moment. So like, oh, breathing, touching the wall, creaking, that's what's happening. There's space for it to arise. So real insight is really just a shift of perception. It's not that the world changes, but how we perceive it and how we understand it and that's how we respond and act in the world does change. An example I like to use a lot in terms of how that works, and even in terms of no self, let's take that, or impermanence. You know those... Um, They used to be very popular a few years ago, those magic eye books that would have uh, graphic designs of two or three different colors that were abstract. 
And if you just look at it, it's just abstract. There's nothing there. And if you, if you stay with it steadily, but kind of unfocused, so it's steady but gentle, and you just stay with it for a while, somehow the perception shifts and a kind of a, a design comes out uh, that looks like it's 3D, you know, and it's, I don't know, an elephant in the jungle or it's a spaceship or whatever, you know. I mean, it really doesn't matter. What it, but that's really obvious. You can really see it, right? Now, was that not there before? And then something happened and it came in there? No, it was there. And then, you know, your eyes kind of go into staring and you look away and you look back and it's not there anymore, right? So in a way, both of those ways of perceiving are there. Just the abstract design and colors is there. Or you perceive in a different way and the, the 3D thing springs out. And then after you've seen it, it doesn't have to stay the 3D thing. It's sort of like seeing everything. You feel like it's a sense of me experiencing that. Time is all comes from me. Space all comes from me. I'm the one seeing. I'm the one meditating. And then you just have a sense of, oh, in the perceiving, there's only perceiving. In the hearing, there's just hearing. In the knowing, there's just knowing. And then, trust me, the next minute, it's me perceiving, me knowing, me wanting to have that insight again, me needing to think about it, me needing to figure it out, me needing to tell all my friends. What's changed? The way reality is hasn't really changed. But knowing it, so knowing that that 3D thing springs out, even when you don't see it, you understand it changes something in your understanding, and you can relate differently. If you've never seen that, and you've tried and tried and tried, my mom was like this. It drove her nuts. She could never see it. And it would make her crazy, right? So doesn't it, when somebody's talking about some insight they've had and you haven't, doesn't it make you crazy? I want to see that. I want to see that. We get tight, and the tighter you get, the less likely you're going to see anything, except tightness. But that's the answer, see? Oh, tightness is like this. The way into the awakening of insight is simply to relax into what's actually happening now. I can't see this goddamn thing. Oh, that tightness is like this. That's awareness, receiving. And as Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, awareness is the doorway to freedom. Just that simple, steady awareness on its own, without our forcing, without our effort, without our willpower, the awareness shifts. It's okay it shifts back. I mean, the perception shifts. It's okay it shifts back. But that knowing, it changes something in our mind stream, in our, in our relation. And that's why just a little moment of awareness compared to a lot of moments of not uh, little moments of insight compared to a lot of moments of just, you know, plodding along on retreat has a huge effect. Have you noticed that? One of my teachers used to say, a spark of truth burns up a mountain of lies. <laughs> so it's not like, it doesn't have to be, you know, time equal, which is good news also. So insight is really this happens on its own through the steady, kind, non-judging awareness, the real trusting of awareness that the way things really are will reveal itself on all levels, our psychological problems, on the level of Dhamma. And we can't make it happen. We don't need to make it happen. 
but something that we didn't even know we were holding to gets released. And it's like, oh, that's how that is. That little aha moment, that's insight. It's not a thought, and then, yes, we'll think about it. That's sort of how we know things. But the thought isn't the same as the insight. From Thich Nhat Hanh, understanding does not arise as a result of thinking. Thich Nhat Hanh says, understanding does not arise as a result of thinking. It is a result of the long process of conscious awareness. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts, but often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. Thoughts are great. Thoughts are useful. We need them. But we can understand them and use them, but the not let them define and constrict and confine our idea of ourself, our views of the world. Thoughts are useful. Insight and awareness come, they're bigger than thoughts. Thoughts are included in awareness. They're fine. But we don't have to fight them, but we don't have to be them. And so, really, in this way, the trusting of awareness, we get first to recognize just that simple knowing of whatever's happening. Recognize, get interested in, what, is there anything coloring the awareness at this moment? Just gently, gently, gently. And the trust that comes is that we get more and more uh, contempt with the awareness itself, less and less looking to a particular experience to do it for us. Because we know every experience that comes is going to go. And this, again, when we don't perceive impermanence. We think we know impermanence, but we don't. We're talking to a lot of people, you know, have a beautiful emotional state. And one part of our mind, the thought says, oh, I know it's going to pass. But on the other level, Quietly, the mind thinking, oh, this is how it's going to be now, finally, right? And the next day is really difficult and painful. And going, oh, no, how am I going to get through the rest of the retreat with this state of mind? Then when we settle back and look, we've had, you know, 57 states of mind in the last two hours. And each one was it. Each one was going to last. But we get more and more interested in the awareness It matters less and less which state of mind, because awareness can receive all of them. It gets so when it's like that, it's interesting. Awareness is just so accessible. Again, it can be no matter what's going on, as much as you've got yourself worked up, oh, worked up is like this. You don't have to go anywhere else. It just takes that willingness, a total commitment, really, to surrender to the unknown in this moment and the trust that awareness can receive that. It's really what we're practicing moment to moment. We're not trying to figure it all out and get the knowledge and get the answer and wrap it all up in a nice little box. We're seeing there is no box. That all it is is just, what's happening now? Awareness can receive it. And that whole definition and sense of me and who I am and what I am and how it has to change, in that moment, not even there. It's not relevant or irrelevant. It's just not there. 
sure, next moment it's there. Don't worry. You can retrieve it when you need it, and it'll come when you don't need it also. But you can, oh, that's right. That's, a, that's just a description right now. It's what's happening now. Awareness is the doorway to freedom, as Samedo says. And any experience in any moment is the doorway to awareness. Anything. The sound of the doves cooing, the heat of the sun, the pain in your back, the frustration arising, the peacefulness of clear seeing, the gurgling of your stomach. Any experience is a doorway to remind us to move into awareness. And the awareness itself is the doorway to clear seeing and the freedom that releases our heart and mind from the need to struggle and fight and react and and struggle with experience. And we don't lose the conventional. We don't like get into some kind of airy fairy who knows what's happening. In fact, when we're just in that purity of awareness receiving, oh, it's like this. When the mind isn't colored in that, just for that moment, and it's all just moments, by greed, by hatred, by confusion. If it's a moment that calls for response, the wise, compassionate response naturally emerges. The natural response of the, you know, the, the non-tormented, non-distracted mind and heart will be metta or compassion, whichever is appropriate, or wisdom or equanimity. It's not that we have to create those. They naturally emerge. So we don't lose the conventional reality. We still function better, if anything. And it can kind of, you know, kind of move between the worlds. So I just want to end with this little from Choki Nima speaking about that. If I can find it. Yes. Choki Nima is actually, he's Sokni Rinpoche, he's one of his brothers. He's talking about these both aspects, the conventional and the ultimate. He says, when watching the magical display of this world as it seems to be, spontaneously, an overwhelming despair and pity well up in me. When watching its nature of innate simplicity as it really is, I cannot help but feel wonder and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels pity and the one who is laughing, both disappear and cannot be found. Now what to do? So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. So walk. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.